0: why is pain so good
1: why is pain so good that makes me sound like a massacre
0: this is not a trick question (laughs) we we could go that way if you wanted to (laughs) you're listening to the occupational philosophers with simon banks and john rice
2: Welcome to another episode of the Occupational Philosophers. But look, before we go any further, John, what's got your curious eye this week?
0: Hello, Simon. What's caught my eye this week has been uh, Lego, which I know we've talked about before. We talked about it with Eleanor, uh, one of the e- earlier episodes. But Lego's just launched its Rebuild the World campaign. It's, I think, it's something they do every year, which is encouraging kids to become masters of problem solving and working together and overcoming challenges through the use of play and use of lego as a process we know obviously kids come together it allows them to think creatively and create if Problem solving is quite key in all of this. So there's a great campaign. If you get a chance, we'll put it in the show notes. But it's a brilliant video of how these kids help this knight in distress, how they get him to cross over this river by building various things and catapults and bridges and all sorts. So it's a great thing. And it was interesting then that the there was a study, the Lego Play Well Study, 2020, and it said that the top five skills that parents feel are most important to their child's future success and well-being are confidence resilience communication problem solving and decision making so i think that's really interesting now i reckon that survey was probably completed in 2019 pre-pandemic and published in 2020 so i'm guessing that the list of the top five skills that parents might feel are most important to their child's future success may change a little in 2021 when they publish it again Uh, What with coronavirus, fuel shortages. don't know if you know about that. We've got fuel shortages over here. It's all gone a bit crazy. Punch-ups in the forecourt. Uh, Climate change. Crazy world leaders taking charge. So I suggest that the top five list may change to something like how to build an underground bunker from Lego. Scavenging and foraging, maybe. Hand-to-hand combat. Being able to survive in a Mad Max apocalyptic world. And um, origami, because we all need some downtime, don't we? So that yeah, was my sure.
2: Point. A little bit <laughs> negative, John, but I would have maybe added to that list after a long time of lockdown, learning to get on with your brothers and sisters and learning to quietly watch the iPad while mum and dad relax with a couple of bottles of wine. So
0: that's it. <laughs> keep, keep an eye out for the next study.
2: <laughs> well, I like that, John. Look, I'm going to go straight into what's caught my curious yeah. eye. And last week we did some Would You Rather questions, which are really Cohen's. And I think maybe the universe was speaking to me this week and I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast and a guy called Henry Shookman, and he went very deep into the world of Cohen's. And he's, I guess, like a, a meditation master, a UK guy, really interesting backstory. But when he was 19, he had this, like an awakening on, he was on the beach in Peru, and he, there was nothing, no uh, ayahuasca, drugs, or even beer involved, he said. But he had this awakening or this spiritual enlightenment where he literally went through these different layers of, Of meaning and he became one with the world and the world separated and so pretty interesting experience for a 19 year old and he said for years he was depressed because he couldn't get back there but what helped him to get back there was Cohen's and he said Cohen's so these questions where there's no right or wrong answer he said Cohen's are speaking from us and speaking to us they give us a non-dual level of experience where the self and the world are one and cohens are a missiary emissaries of enlightened experiences and whenever you listen to a story the most interesting story i mean most interesting character is one who changes in the story so you think the hero's journey in a cohen you're the character john oh, so how's oh, that oh. for some depth that's really and-
0: profound that's gone you've gone deep very quickly there
2: but um yeah i've listened to that two or three times just found it so interesting and i'll put a link to the show notes a couple of hours but i thought it was i really enjoyed it yeah but just how making you ask questions and not knowing the answer is the answer if that makes sense making you yeah yeah yeah
0: process of exploration yeah It is. I suspect today's guest, we have a guest episode, Simon, which is very exciting. And I suspect they would have some thoughts around this kind of topic as well. So who is the curious cat we have in this week?
2: Well, John, as always, we're in for an absolute treat. This week, we have Dr. Brock Bastian, who's a social psychologist whose research focuses on pain, happiness, and morality. He's a professor at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. His book, the Other Side of Happiness, which has had glowing reviews all over the world, was published in January 2018. He completed his PhD in 2007, and since then, I get excited when I write a blog, he has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. It's been featured in The Economist, The New Yorker, Time, The New Scientist, scientific american the harvard business review and the huffington post among many others is a ted talker and an all-round interesting cat brock dr brock <laughs> welcome to the occupational <laughs> philosophers thank you thank you for having me hello
0: hello brock uh, maybe just leading on for myself at simon what's caught your eye this week brock
1: good question well my world in lockdown here revolves in a five kilometer radius i think it's now been extended and so one of the things I noticed actually was in the the paper, you know, a number of dads, probably not dissimilar to myself, were thinking, what are we are going to do with our kids during the school holidays, which we're almost through. Most of us are still alive, which is good. And so up just a little way from where my house is, within my five-kilometre radius, I can assure you, is a 20-hole mini-golf on uh, nature strips. And so you can walk around, and people have uh, built these putt-putt mini-golf Little challenges out the front of their their homes, and you can walk around and and can and I guess do this with your kids during lockdown during during school holidays. So I thought that was a fairly creative approach. I mean, actually, to be honest, as I ran past one, the only thing I saw was about four guys with a couple of beers standing around. But I'm sure it was built for the kids. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, it's good. I thought that was a fairly creative approach to uh, school holidays.
2: And is that, is that something that's popped up during lockdown or is that just a, a community has created that?
1: No, it was, a lock, it, was a, it was specifically for school holidays and lockdown. So it only, it's only, it only happened last week, I think, at the beginning of last week, or they prepared for it. It's, I mean, some of them are quite ornate, so they obviously put a bit of work into them too, which is, which is good. But, um, okay. yeah, a community, community project.
0: Are these, um, I don't know if you have this in Australia, are they like crazy golf-type things? Is it, there's... You know, where you pop exactly. the ball and it yeah. goes through up a ramp and through a windmill and yeah. pops out somewhere
1: else, and that kind of thing. Sort oh, of thing. Fantastic. I mean, you know, yeah. within reason, obviously, but on uh, yeah. major
2: <laughs> Now, Brock, um, we have listeners from all over the world. Where are you in the world today? Melbourne, Australia.
0: Building off the back of the bio that uh, Simon introduced you with, uh, Brock, how would you describe what you do?
1: Well, primarily... Primarily, I'm a researcher and academic um, in that sense. So that, that's my, you know, my, my main day job, and and I, along with that comes some some teaching and lecturing, of course, as well. But a fair amount of what I do focuses on on research, which also includes obviously supervising students and and postdocs and helping them to push their research forward as well, and working with working collaboratively with people around the world as well. So that's that's sort of lots of you know interesting ideas. To work on and to pursue, I so that's, that's my my key. I suppose the key thing I do. In addition to that, I, I'm also uh, a practicing psychologist, so I have a private practice where I see patients. I also work in um, organisational settings, doing training around culture and leadership and those sorts of factors. And yeah, I, I guess you know a range of things to keep life interesting. But yeah, mostly uh, mostly I- research.
0: As you said, the researching thing, the, the thing that always intrigues me is how do you choose what to research? Is it your own ideas or is it that as you talk with people, you say, hey, let's go down this, let's go off on this tangent. Let's research this. How do these ideas come together? That's a good question.
1: I think there's sort of two ways. I mean, definitely it's up to you. That's the great thing, I suppose, about academia is you do get to, I mean, it's, it's also the worst thing about it because, you know, it's your fault. If it's crap. So <laughs> <laughs> No pressure
0: <laughs> What is this about? We always see those studies They go, why are they studying that?
1: <laughs> That's right So, you know, you, you get to choose yourself But of course, well, I mean, you get to choose But of course, you've got to choose things Which other people think are valuable or, or, or will publish So, I mean, it's, there's a social ecosystem That you're working with in there You can't just do, you know, you could do anything But you might not be very successful by doing so So you need to read the, the territory a little bit and I suppose there as well, I think there's two ways that people come up with good research questions. One is to know the literature very well and to find a gap in terms of what people have done and what people haven't done, and then try and fill that gap, working from the bottom up, I suppose you might say. The other way, I think, is to sort of look around in, in the world and find interesting questions and then apply your tools to try and answer those. and and hope that it fills a gap in literature at some point, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. so I guess there's two ways. And, and I, yeah, sometimes starting with the real world problems, I, I certainly find is probably, for me, it works better.
2: Now, that, that I work a lot in the entrepreneurial world, and that's exactly what entrepreneurialism is, like finding that gap and finding a, a problem that exists that we need to be solved or we need yeah. more information on. It's that very same mindset.
1: Absolutely. I mean I mean look creativity is big and um, you know you don't think of science so, as scientists as being creative but it's a very creative uh, world because you are finding solutions to problems also of course you need to know how to you know really how to sell those solutions too funnily enough not only to your, uh, your colleagues and to journals and to peer review but then hopefully beyond that too so um, there is an entrepreneurial part to it absolutely
0: and that idea of finding a question you said find a gap find a question and of course there's a huge thing in that isn't it the right question you've really got to think about how to refine and hone down to yes. decide what's the question we wish to ask here. that must be yeah. quite a process as well
1: yeah that's right so you, you you know you might and and knowing that it's a good question as well because there are there are all sorts of questions out there but and, and of course that identification of a good question comes from knowing again what you know what the contribution is going to be for for answering that question and having some insight into that which i think is you you get that through experience a little bit that's what that's probably what i do is is help students to work out how to ask good questions mostly and you know to see where what sort of questions and the and the answers to which are likely to make a contribution yeah
2: so we've heard a few different things there we've heard research we've heard Creativity, we've heard uh, mentoring—if that's the right way to say it—or um, uh, lecturing. What what are your intersections? If you think there's three or four passions or things that you do, and you sit in the middle of those? What might some of those intersections be?
1: So, I guess in terms of content or, or ideas, I, I, I work probably in two main areas. One is ethics or morality, um, understanding from a psychological perspective how people resolve or think through ethical dilemmas in the everyday world. And the blind spots that come with that, of course, that's I think what psychologists add to that space is understanding, you know, the the sorts of ways in which we might get that wrong sometimes. But also well-being and and happiness. And that's another interest area of mine. And so and increasingly looking to bring those two together and understanding the link between living an ethical and good life and then also levels of well-being and how that might be influenced or related to that but also continuing to explore each in its own right too. I guess the other the other intersection is between theory and practice. So I, I really like working in the sort of esoteric ivory tower type thing where you're just coming up with ideas and doing what you, whatever you like, but also get quite bored of that if it's not having some sort of impact. So I guess that's where I do, I guess, writing a book and doing some consulting work, training work, clinical work, that that all sort of translates. And I find that's very important to have that. You know,
2: that, that mixture as well. Okay, it's time for a quick fire round. And look, we're always curious around someone's journey, where they've been and sort of how you've managed to find yourself where you are today. So first question, what are some of the big experiences that have formed you? And maybe like a, a follow up question is what inspired you to head down this path? Anything in particular at school or life or?
1: Look, I, I, so it's an interesting question, one I probably find a little bit hard to answer because I'm not too sure that I um, I see my journey as a little bit more of a kind of haphazard mixture of a range of luck and whatever else really. I mean, in some ways I, I, I kind of liked philosophy and then decided to do psychology because it had more applied angle to it and then some of the questions that I, I get interested in, just the things you bump into along the way. So, I mean, I certainly, um, I think I took some time off during university when travelling, and I found that was, I think, a really good experience, a couple of years of, I guess, travelling around and experiencing the world, which I thought was very important. But I, I don't really, I, to be honest, I don't think I can really honestly weave a, a neat narrative around why I ended up where I am. To be honest, I think I sort of just follow my nose sometimes and and then stuff happens, and, th- and that would be the more honest stuff. I, I, could, I could give you a story which often I think people do, but um, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'd, it would be the honest answer to your question. In research and in that area, I mean, you obviously are working with some, I mean, you, you know, when I do my PhD, I was supervised by my supervisor, who was obviously had a very strong influence on the direction that I took, and also colleagues that I would work with and talk to around ideas. Again, I wouldn't say that there's one or the other particularly. I think it's a, always a net, you know, a range of people that I've probably, but I, I certainly have sought out the influences and, and try to connect with as many people as possible. I think that that's, that's really important you. The more that you talk to people and, and work out how they do what they do, I, I learn from other people mostly. You know, I look to people who do things and then work out or learn from them how they do it and, and then apply it myself. So, um, But, yeah, really a range, I'd say, a real range of people in my life.
2: And look, I like the fact that you said it's haphazard. I think that's really a reflection of life, isn't it? Like, yeah. I think that, oh, my life was planned out for me. I did this and did that. And I went to a career with the same company for 40 years. That doesn't really exist anymore, or probably ever should have. Like, it's a, it's maybe it's a boring life. I don't know. Like, I think, you know, being open to the world and what influences well, you lot have. Luck and, as well, yeah.
1: Right? yeah. There's a lot of luck. I think we forget how much luck there is involved in, the, in actually where we end up in life. So, um,
0: Although I should just add, I knew I was going to be doing this podcast with you, Simon, 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm glad,
2: John. Aren't really we lucky to have I've been working you.
0: towards this moment. <laughs> now on on luck though,
2: <laughs> this might be a question in your field. I've just read some studies and watched some shows as well how luck is also something that people who consider themselves lucky actually have more positive experiences happen to them. And they did wow. a, a show in the UK and it was in one of the towns and there was a, a butcher in the town who was mm-hmm. always down on his luck and he you know, thought everything was bad and just what what came around these, you know, lip hanging down all the time and life wasn't that good but he was a really popular guy in the town but they set up this social experiment and they would have all these positive opportunities that could happen for him but he Mm. walked past them and whereas other people, they say, would uh, would see them just because their eyes are open and they consider, yeah, well, life is good, where he considered life wasn't, you know, life was tough and hard. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they went back and showed him, here's all these opportunities you passed up over three or four days, which are staged. And he, you know, you know broke down crying, oh, my life and, you know, I'm going to be a better dad and person and butcher. And that was the sort of experiment. Does that... <laughs> John, you're, you're laughing I'm going
0: to be a better butcher
2: <laughs> Well, I guess, I guess <laughs> Does that ring true yeah. in your world, or is that idea of luck?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I think, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of luck I mean, you know, it's hard work and luck, I think, mostly And, I mean, you know, a great example is the peer review process I mean, you send your uh, your research out It has to pass peer review to be published You don't know who's going to review it You don't know what issues they're going to have It's always idiosyncratic and so depending on who you get and whether they like it or not, that's luck, right? You can't control that at all. And then, you know, if you get a bad review, set of reviews, all you can do is try again. But you've got no control over that at all. So you can work hard. Um, you can put your best foot forward, and you've got to. I think if you don't do that, then you've got nothing. But then there's a certain element there that you don't control. And you. I think the more that you... Probably the more you're willing to recognise that and the more that you understand that perhaps that's where you, when you can perhaps take on those risks a little more in life because you realize well that's okay it's okay not to have control over the end product here i'll do what i can do control what i control and leave the rest up to luck and i guess also you don't take it so badly when things don't go well when you when you fail or when when things don't work out you know you realize well that was bad luck
0: and would you know who's going to peer review once it goes out or is it hidden no. from you forever? It's you never know
1: well in so increasingly Increasingly, there is some transparency, and some people do sign their reviews, and you can request reviewers you want and request reviewers you don't want. But you don't know if the editor is going to use that list and swap it around on you. You've got no idea, really. So, you know, I'd most don't <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave it up to the, you know, <laughs> leave it up. To the hope that, hope there's that someone there's... someone nice in at the end. <laughs>
0: That's it. You'll be going, oh, God, it's gone to Professor Tom Smith. He hates me. (laughs) (laughs) This has got no chance of getting published.
1: Well, I wouldn't know. (laughs) I wouldn't know. You're constantly guessing, I would say, but uh, you wouldn't know.
0: (laughs) So, Brock, we're the occupational philosophers, and you've already touched on the fact that philosophy is one of those areas of interest for you. And so I did wonder what schools of philosophy, maybe what philosophers maybe have informed or inspired your work. Because you talk about ethics, you talk about the virtuous life almost, which is one Mm -hmm. of those very early concepts that philosophy looked to study and and try to wrestle with. So I was wondering if there were particular schools that do sort of come into play.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, the the way that we do it in psychology is often a bit different, where we're we're actually trying to understand how people grapple with these sorts of problems in life, as opposed to what the right answer might be. But I would say that in terms of thinking through how to live the good life, yeah, I, I think I think a little bit about stoicism probably is comes through in some ways. Um, not that I necessarily intended that to be the case. I think I'm more worked from the psychological kind of principles to think through you know, why it might be that sometimes a bit of struggle in life is good for us. Maybe a bit of personal life experience, I guess, as well. We've all had those, you know, those struggles we can draw on or understand life from. So, yeah, I I mean, I I think philosophy has certainly influenced me broadly and, you know, learning the various different ways of thinking philosophically and also how to, you know, even down to I think one of the things that we miss a bit with philosophy or not, not having philosophy quite so well positioned as perhaps it once was, is, is just that logic, the capacity to actually think clearly about, you know, to develop a, a question, um, a good question, to, to understand what makes a good theory as well. So all of that, I think, has been very, very important, but um, probably a little bit stoic, I guess, in, term, in, in terms of what are the, the contributors to a good life.
0: Yeah, I think that was uh, that was my thought as you were describing things earlier. And resilience as well, isn't it? Because, again, that idea from what we'll talk about, about pain and how actually the experience of pain actually builds up What doesn't kill you, makes you stronger type thing. And Resilience and the ability to come through suffering is one of those things that you say in Stoicism. I I think Buddhism as well, isn't it, to some degree, the idea that there is suffering.
1: Well, actually, when I started the
0: path to enlightenment.
1: Well, I Sorry, started no. researching that, when I started looking into, you know, what, a, what some of that area I realised that most of the work was actually in religion, funnily enough. You know, most a lot of work that examines the benefits or upsides of our negative painful experiences in life do come from religion, different forms of it too. Yeah.
2: And would you say that Stoicism is a modern day workplace resilience, like we often hear about, especially I guess the last two years, resilient, we want resilient kids, we want resilient workforces, we want resilient lives. Is stoicism, as is, yeah, is resilience the modern day version of stoicism? Would you say?
1: Oh, look, yes and no. I mean, resilience is really just defined as that capacity to bounce back well from setbacks. So, resilience is probably more defined by our capacities to respond well. Stoicism is the idea that we need a little bit of struggle in life in order to you know or I guess the way that we we respond to that struggle is is somewhat stoic and and but but I guess in that way there's there's a link there sure but I think resilience probably brings in a range of a range of factors that can contribute to how people respond well to setbacks in life in the modern workplace I actually I think resilience is a well it can be it can be used poorly I mean if you have a a really bad workplace with bad leaders and bad culture and then you just try and teach everyone to be resilient to manage it and, and that, that happens <laughs> you know that a lot that's, yeah. a lot <laughs> yeah that's not a great thing so i think resilience whilst resilience and understanding what resilience is really important i think it has it has also been misapplied often and used to cover up probably what are some underlying problems particularly in, in organizations here
0: I think more and more we see sometimes see resilience is, how do we get people to put up with this shit?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's right. I don't want to change the workload. I don't want to change the way we do things. I don't want to change my leadership style. Just teach you all to be resilient. Yeah.
0: Brock, we know something of your key work around how, and again, I'm going to paraphrase, but how pain is perhaps not valued as much as it should be or could be, and that it's an essential part of the the human condition. It is essential as, as we try to sort of make our way to have moments of happiness or even longevity of happiness. But why is pain so good?
1: Why well, is pain so good? that makes me sound like a masochist.
0: Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> this is not a trick question. <laughs> we, we could go that way if you wanted to.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think the thing is, it's not the pain is so good. I think we'd all prefer to experience pleasure and we would all prefer to be happy. But the thing is, if you start to think about that, and, and you think about that state of pleasure and happiness and and perhaps joy and just ever you know ever and never ending joy and happiness and you know fulfilled needs and satisfaction and happiness and the more I say that the more you start to go hang on a sec that doesn't sound like it's very good at all and then you think of Aldous Huxley and you know his book The Brave New World where he wrote about the dystopian future where we didn't have any pain at all and suddenly it starts to become apparent that we need a little bit of that in life. Um, actually, a, a never-ending state of, of anything becomes actually quite problematic. And we, we, we would probably, what we know from psychology, is we'd probably adjust to it anyway. It, we, we become quite numb. So you do need this variation in, in your life. And in actual fact, if you think about a lot of the things we do, we're, we're often seeking out painful and, un- and unpleasant experiences in order to gain happiness. A lot of what we do, if it's got any challenge attached to it, you know every time you run a marathon or go for a run or you know with even without the marathon you know this this involves an element of pain and of course these things don't make any sense if they're not hard any challenge that you take on has got the possibility of failure and if you take the possibility of failure away then it's no good passing a course is is great you know if you get past you feel a sense of satisfaction but if you're guaranteed not to fail at all when you started that you know there was no chance of that then well, where's the satisfaction come from so in, you know i think we've just forgotten that we do need that flip side, and we often do seek it out because it is what makes us happy—to have some of those experiences, to dip into them, and then also to, to come out of them again. On the other side, we we know from again from psychology that often having some painful experiences actually releases more pleasure in life too. You know, it's called opponent process or contrast effects. So there are a range of reasons why that notion that you know, well, why why don't we just all well, you know why can't we just always be happy. Well, we actually can't. And um, there are people who believe that we can. I've had arguments with them in, in, you know, on YouTube, but you know, the, but the only way the only way that they sustain that is if they re, we re-engineer the human condition, and that's okay. Sure, if you want to re-engineer us in a way that makes us different, but as we currently exist, as a human, as our current human condition exists, we need this this contrast between pain and pleasure in order to have any happiness in life. And so, pain plays that role. It's very important. It provides. You know, there's a range of other things that provides, you know, I mean, a lot of meaning and purpose comes from difficulty in life. If you don't have it, you don't have that struggle. It's very hard to get that sense of meaning and purpose with what you do. You can't build resilience if you don't have some experience with difficulty and pain and discomfort. You know, resilience comes from that. In our own work, we found that the social connection is often strengthened around those sorts of experiences as well. So there's a, there's a range of benefits there. And it's not that you would want to have those experiences always, but it's more about, understanding that we we do need to have those experiences they're inevitable and important but how you frame them and how you respond to them really changes how they play out for you and seeing a bit of that seeing that it's not just all bad and that actually there are some benefits there and there are some good sides to it and that it's actually a necessary important part of life helps you to actually respond better to those experiences and then get more of those those benefits you can derive from them too
2: yeah because nobody wants a pain-free boot camp do they if you see that, you think no, I don't exactly. want to be part of that. That is the most basic level. <laughs> <laughs> you think that that's the worst boot camp ever. <laughs> yeah, how's that? Yeah, good. Yeah, feel happy. Like yeah, really easy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's true. I mean, I I just started doing a one of these hit classes. You know, these high intensity interval training, yeah. things. and the first time I did it, I mean, I was nearly I nearly puked. Mm. <laughs> I mm. Just just mm. I thought I'm never going to get through this. But then, moments afterwards, as you say, the runner's high, or whatever it is, that elation kicked mm. in to go. Oh, I did that! Wow, yeah. and I had to work bloody hard to do it.
1: Yeah, so I think any, any achievement in life, you have to go through something difficult first in order to experience that sense of achievement, even at the at the high cognitive level. But even at the at the physiological level, you get it as well. Yeah. Mm. And
2: is there a way for um, a previous guest, Eleanor Tweddle? She has written a book and become very well known for um, like why losing your job may be the best thing that ever happened to you uh, in the UK. And she said, you almost have to sit in that moment of loss after you've lost your job and just reimagine. Is there a way to maybe just to think around pain? Like, do we sit in the pain or do we, is it maybe around often here, why is this happening for me rather than why it's yeah. happening to me? Is there a way to embrace that or a, a new way of thinking about yeah. it?
1: Absolutely. So one of one of the things that, that is you know really important if you're experiencing any kind of unpleasant or uncomfortable emotion is to actually turn around and you know I'm assuming it's not actually dangerous for you, is to you know turn around and walk into it. So these sorts of emotions, fear, anxiety, panic, they're in our brain to help us to avoid dangers in the world, um, and that's how we survived. We all you know develop big amygdalas which fired off whenever we were chased by a lion or. We're almost run down by a semi-trailer on the, on the highway. And so we, we, we escape from those experiences and we survive. So they're very, very important. But sometimes we have those experiences and we are also aware there's no danger in the experience itself or in that moment. And so actually turning around and, and walking towards it is one of the best ways to manage it. And, of course, that means sitting with it. It means accepting it. It means acknowledging its existence and understanding it. Being curious, actually. The idea of curiosity is really important in terms of regulating and managing our emotional worlds. If you're curious and you turn around and face into that and try and understand what it is and derive the information that it holds for you, you respond better to that. And, and it's, it's now part of a, really a core psychological therapy in terms of teaching people to do this well.
0: So with that, I mean, again, you say it and we kind of recognise it. You go, yeah, I experienced that elation with the runners high and the fitness. And so the concept carries quite logically through and you go but why is there such resistance to it? do you think society that I want my kids to be happy that's what parents say I want my kids just I just want them to be happy it's very ingrained isn't it in our um, society and I wonder why there is a resistance to it is it just a, a lack of understanding maybe around this that again your work is starting to bridge
1: It's a good question. I mean, you know, where does culture come from? I think there's certainly been a culture emerged where we have a a set of expectations around what we should and can tolerate, and what our kids should and can tolerate. Again, in in the US, there was the, you know, in the 1980s, there was a self-esteem movement where we all just, it was decided the most important thing we could do for children was to build their self-esteem. We now have books called The Age of Entitlement, which is really the upshot of the self-esteem movement. So, I think there has been a sort of cultural shift there. I mean, to break down where and why that came, where it came from, and why it's there would be complex and multifaceted, and we can look at a range of, I, I think, background factors from the way the economy works to all sorts of things to our levels of comfort as well, probably too. So there's a, there's a range of factors that you could look at there, but it, it certainly has become part of our culture. I don't think it's always been there. I think it's there more and more now, perhaps. And of course that with that comes a set of expectations around how we do live our lives, what our goals should be, what we think others want us to feel or experience, or how we think they want us to present ourselves, and then also how we parent our children and what it means to be a good parent. And, you know, increasingly that means to protect them and to make sure that they're never exposed to anything which could upset them. And and then of course you've got people like uh, Jonathan Haidt who have been talking around the, the Molly coddling in, in American universities where now even kids at university don't want to be exposed to anything which even they disagree with or that fundamentally makes them uncomfortable on an informational level or the, the idea of trigger warnings where perfectly healthy individuals just don't want to be exposed to anything uncomfortable in, in the content of lectures or other sorts of um, information. So, you know, it has sort of progressed into this idea or expectation I should be protected from anything uncomfortable in life but of course I think that's actually we're starting to realize that's a problem
2: okay so I've got a question that sort of builds on that idea of uh, I guess being uncomfortable a little and it's in the world that I guess this podcast sits and also where I, where I play as well and that's around creativity and you I read a study where you did with your um, colleagues and there is Entitled? No, titled. (laughs) Shared adversity increases team creativity through fostering supportive interaction. Now, I guess what caught my eye was that notion around adversity and creativity, and it makes perfect sense, but I guess the nice insight for me was when I work with organisations, I often try to flip it and say, let's get rid of the, the negativity up front because I think, especially in Australia, we love to go, stupid idea. Yeah, nice one, idiot. Yeah. We all have a laugh. So it was a really nice, made me think around, oh, hang on, am I doing this the right way? And so do you want to talk a little bit to that study and then how that adversity would push our creativity mm-hmm. further?
1: Yeah. So in that study, as with quite a few of our studies, we had people um, in groups. We did, you know, it's experimental behavioral work. So we had people come into the lab and we got them to do two activities one was to eat a hot chili; these were quite hot. We made sure, we, you know, a lot of interesting sort of pre- prior sampling. And the other was to, <laughs> and the other was well, other was to do some some leg squats. So two and 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 the, you know the 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 control condition or the non-painful condition was to you know eat eat something which was not painful and also to just balance on one leg or do something which was similar but not painful. So. Groups either went through you know, what, what is quite a painful set of activities versus a non-painful set of activities. And then we, we, we video recorded that and then rated the extent to which people, this painful activity, the, the experience of going through it together, how it changed the way that people related to each other. And people became a lot more open, a lot more supportive, a lot more interactive when they were going through that quite difficult experience again because they I think you know sometimes those difficult experiences they kind of take down the facade it's very hard to pretend to be something that you're not when you're in pain when (laughs) when things aren't going well often it's a quite a raw experience and so that brings a lot of authenticity and humanity into that and I think that's what we really saw was that people changed the way that they related to each other there was a sense of support openness in those interactions and then when when it came to that those creative tasks one was to think for as you know, one task was to think of as many uses for a brick as you possibly can. And of course, if you're not going to start to throw out some pretty crazy and silly sounding ideas, then you're not going to actually generate that creative process. And we can then rate exactly you know how creative some of those ideas were. Using a you know the, the way that the, the task is set up, there's there's a way of rating all of that. We even got people to do some posters together and got a third party to rate the creativity of those posters. And so we certainly found that that yeah those groups that had gone through the pain process had had actually they became more creative on those on those indicators and that was explained by the extent to which they became more supportive and open in the group. Almost a sense of I mean if you were to throw out an idea that I think is getting some popularity at the moment almost a sense of psychological safety in those teams where um, where they had been through that difficulty together and and again I think it's because it does break down the pretense you know when you're sweating with a from eating a hot chili pepper you kind of it opens that interpersonal space up a little bit and make and br- brings people's willingness to be open and supportive to each other and, yeah, and not to be critical or to expect others perhaps to come in with a particular approach. Yeah, I think it has that sort of effect.
0: We had uh, discussions around this before, I think. It's a theme that keeps coming back about uh, vulnerability and trust. And there yeah. seems to be something in that as well. You talked about psychological safety, but that idea that yeah. as people start to be seen as vulnerable in front of each other yeah. actually that then is a seed of trust yes It yes, almost goes way. the other way you don't need to have trust and then be vulnerable vulnerability no. is what leads into that trust building and then as you say safety yeah. allows people to express themselves and be creative and do their best work
1: well, it's interesting. I mean, that's that's often exactly uh, the way you put it there. I mean, that's often the mistake people make in relationships is that they want to hold back that vulnerability before until they know they can trust the other person, but actually it doesn't work that way, as you said. You've got to be a bit vulnerable first. So, yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it. It certainly makes you vulnerable when you're in pain.
2: And look, I might frame that way or frame that way of thinking around the adversity and creativity. So embrace the adversity because that mm. adversity also is the creativity. So embrace mm-hmm. the pain but don't be painful to each other, I think. That's why, where I go at it. like yep. It can be very confrontational, this world of I don't agree with you or I've said something that I've never mm. heard of and, well, therefore it's yeah. wrong. So I think embrace the nonlinear approach of what's yep. happening and things not working out how you want, which is, I guess, that resilience, a little bit of stoicism, a little yep. bit of vulnerability and trust. And therefore, yep. those human connections drive that creativity from
0: there.
1: Yes, absolutely. And
0: and make sure you bring a bag of chilies to the next team day.
1: That's exactly it. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. <laughs> just Just out of
2: interest, was there a little bit of fun when you were testing them like you go, oh no, Jono, he's gone too far. We're definitely not going to have that one. Like in <laughs> poor old Professor Jono's over there, like
1: with you know, <laughs> tears and steam. And <laughs> oh no, it's all students. We only, we <laughs> only. We only- <laughs> <laughs>
2: so you're, I, I like your theory of pain. I like pain from my students. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. That's right. That's right. Well, we, you know, they they get credit for it, so it's fine. <laughs>
0: So, Brock, we love getting people to get curious, think a little differently. You would probably know from your work that thought experiments are a big way that philosophers and researchers think, try to make sense of things and explore ideas. So we have our own thought experiments here on the Occupational Philosophers. And we wanted to, today, we thought we'd share with you um, our own research around the topic of pain, which is obviously something very close to your work, and invite you to share your talent in recognising the source of pain, be that physical or emotional, which both myself and Simon, as I say, have been researching and we found out. We have five expressions of pain, and we'd like you to identify the source. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay? So the first one is uh, as follows. Ooh. So can you recognise the source of that pain, Brock? (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds as though maybe maybe a stubbed to toe.
0: It's not. It's not. not far too off. far away. <laughs> it was actually, unfortunately, that's uh, that's incorrect, Brock. It was me okay. stepping on a piece of my my child's Lego.
1: Oh, okay, yes, yes. It's, it's you good. recognize that's it now. Tough. You
0: recognize it now, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You're yeah, in the right. Um, you're in so, the right so, ballpark.
2: So, okay, so here's the second one. This pain is
0: hmm
1: right that's that's when you've um suggested to your yes that's when someone's disagreeing with you isn't it (laughs) (laughs) not too far off that is
2: actually when after father's day you get your chocolates and your treats you hide them in the house Uh, you go and then open the drawer by your bed and they're uh, gone and the "Hmm," uh, like all right do i keep my cool here or do i just go ballistic and yell at the kids. So.
0: <laughs> Not too. That's
1: pretty good, though. You're pretty good. You're pretty it, good. Yeah. All right, They're
0: close. Yeah. Okay. Next one.
1: Oh, oh. You've just you've just sat on an entire Lego construction on the couch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, that's uh, that's uh, sound. Um, that's 17. That's uh, further down in this. <laughs> <laughs> we did do that one. No, sorry, sorry, Brock, but that was actually uh, that was me getting out of a chair too quickly. Oh,
1: right. Oh, well, did I said The chair part, I had the chair part.
0: You had the you chair part, everything. I thought you were you're, getting you're, close there. You're
2: but, remarkably uh, good at this, actually. We've had other people yeah. who've never been able to guess any of these, so you're remarkably good. All right, here's the next one. Uh,
1: that sounds like disappointment to me of some of some sort. Yeah, disappointment. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm just gonna go have disappointment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's when I look in the mirror and I realise my hair is thinning.
1: Oh That's good. I get an update from a hairdresser each time, you know little, little <laughs> <laughs> little. <laughs> All
2: right, John, That's you've good, got so. a, okay,
0: a last one. Last one. Last one there. This is a tough one.
1: Oh, oh! Well, I, I mean, that certainly sounds more significant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's, that's definitely a scientist or psychologist speaking. Try to just sort of come around it in a peripheral way. <laughs> yes. <exactly.
1: laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It is
0: significant. You're right, I'll give you that. It is significant pain. You've
1: you've forgotten to take your leg out of the car as you shut the door.
0: Ooh. Very
1: close.
0: uh, (laughs) Not (laughs) Not very close. Close. (laughs) The level of pain, probably you're probably right here. Unfortunately, it's wrong. That was actually a that was a pelican flying into my face while I was doing yoga.
1: Of course. I mean, I can't. I I mean,
0: (laughs) as you think back to it now, you go, oh, yes, you just missed that. How did I I miss that? How did you miss Uh that? But Car (laughs) Door, I did do that as well, and it was a similar sound. Now,
2: Brock, you're the winner of the Wegner Theoretical Innovation Prize, and just if you're listening at home, the Wegner Prize recognises theoretical articles that are especially likely to generate the discovery of new hypothesis, new phenomena, or new ways of thinking. Now, this is specifically in your area of social personality psychology, but that type of thinking, new hypothesis, new phenomena, new ways of thinking, is what this podcast is about. And as a not so serious business podcast, we like to dive into the advice for uh, others. So if for individuals, you're sitting at home listening, how can we foster new ways of thinking in our lives that would help create more creativity, more curiosity and new ways of looking at the world?
1: Yeah, I I mean, again, I got that for one of, you know, one of the articles that I wrote. But I I suppose, you know, if I was to have a, a bit of a lay shot at what fosters that creativity, and I'm you know, really it's, I suppose, looking at things differently, being prepared to see things from a different perspective, but also in that sense, being willing to not necessarily expect success. When you do, I think you have to take some risks. And then, of course, with those risks come the possibility of failure or I'm um, getting it wrong or saying something stupid or saying things that people might not find smart or like. And I think that's a really important part of the process. You know, you, you've got to get good at taking on that that possibility that maybe what you say might not get, you know, again, the, the paper that I wrote that got that prize, well, who knows whether or not it would have been received in such that way, but I, I thought at the time that the ideas were interesting enough to pursue. So I guess you, you take some risks and with your ideas, with your approach to problems, etc.
0: Is that the, the idea of taking risk and again, being prepared to fail, risking the fact that you might look stupid or not mm. be seen as smart or whatever, that's a massive one, isn't it? It really does hamper People in every area of one's life, doesn't it? Mm. And I'm just wondering, is there any tips to kind of go, how do you overcome that? How do you actually start to push yeah. yourself out of the, the, you know, into the discomfort zone and go, do you know, what? I'm going to go out on this now.
1: Well, I think and try one, something. Yeah. I think one good tip is just to recognize that actually it's not, there's, there's not the sort of social cost to it that you think there is. In fact, there's some great, mm. great evidence in leadership which suggests that that leaders who change their mind and back down and admit they might have taken the wrong direction and who also share not only their successes but share their failures, that they're, they're seen as confident and intelligent. And, of course, on the flip side, if you dig your heels in and never admit you got it wrong, you're seen as unintelligent as though you're lacking confidence. So there's actually... Hmm. And, and if you think also even just an interpersonal level, who are the people you like? They're not the people who never, who never make mistakes. No-one likes those people. They make us feel insecure. <laughs> The people that we like are the people who get it wrong but are really good at responding. They are, are, are really comfortable with being wrong. And so they make mistakes, but they're, they're comfortable with that and they correct or they adjust and they're very, I suppose, agile but also malleable in that space, comfortable and curious in that sort of sense. So, yeah, I think our intuition that making mistakes, failing, getting things wrong is is going to make us look stupid is actually it's the other way around. It actually flips around mm-hmm. on us. And sometimes people like us more when we do it well. You know, failing well is actually a great social skill.
0: <laughs> I like that. Failing well, I like that. Uh, bringing that then into individuals coming together, working in teams, mm. you kind of already touched on the idea that there's a that adversity, etc., can bring about a certain cohesion mm. within teams. But, but what can teams learn again through this idea of pain? Failure is a useful mm. experience that's going to help them in the way they work and what they can achieve. Mm.
1: Well, I mean, there's probably a few different uh, aspects to it. I mean, certainly the idea that, that when you, as a team, you do go through a difficult time, which I think every team probably has in the last 18 months, that, that actually there's some fertile ground in there for building some of the sorts of qualities you might actually want to see in that team. Again, like our research, where teams that go through a difficult experience together can actually become a bit more authentic, you know, a little bit more vulnerable and therefore uh, actually build a culture which enables more creativity and probably other things as well. So... I think recognizing that going through difficult periods or processes or, or times in your, with your team is there's, there's benefits to that. Um, I think also recognizing interpersonally within teams that sometimes having those challenging, difficult conversations with people, being open and honest, but that you know often receiving feedback, for example, or giving feedback, all of these things is very uncomfortable. And sometimes we worry that we're going to destroy relationships if we tell someone you know what we really think. Um, or if we're honest with them and open with them. But actually, again, the research suggested in terms of relationships, when you go through something which is a bit awkward and a bit prickly, or that doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't exactly the kind of interaction, it's not exactly smooth, um, there's some discomfort in there. But if you manage it and you manage it well, your relationship grows better as a result of that because you realise, you know what, we, we had that disagreement and we got through it, which means we can disagree and our relationship can withstand that. So even that discomfort inside relationships when you lean into that and, and embrace it and realise it's okay, there's actually benefits for that in terms of how teams get along and build relationships together as well. So I think you know I think there's probably you know that the way the group, the sorts of things a group has to go through together, but also the way that you relate to each other as well. I think there's there's things in both both of those elements.
2: And um, I don't want to steal your IP here, but if you were to go in and run maybe a team exercise around this notion of not having to agree which is great because that's what diversity is, isn't it? Like that ability to have those disagreements because that's what drives, you know, really innovative thought and the the creativity so many organisations want. What would you maybe do as an exercise around that space of diverse thinking, accepting each other's faults, working through problems? Because as as you've probably experienced, and John, when we talk around organisations, you know, 99% of problems come back to people. Like it's not the technology, yeah. it's how people are using it. It's not the team structure, it's just how people are operating yeah. in that team structure. So,
1: yeah, long question. No, Any, no. What would you do? Well, I think a couple, there's a couple of, probably a couple of things in there amongst other things. I mean, one of the things that, that I would often do is is firstly to get people to see where they do get it wrong and, and how reliably we get it wrong. You know, we're, we're predictably irrational, as Dan Ariely once wrote a book called that. So I think helping people to see that, you know, none of us are actually without blind spots, so that's the first thing. I mean, we, if, we, if we're we going to have those blind spots, then we need others sometimes to tap us on the shoulder and, and to show us where those might be. And of course, this may be in a creative process, but it can also be in an interpersonal, even an ethical to space as well, you know, that we need people to sometimes hold us to account to show us where we're getting things wrong, but also just the idea that we do get things wrong and therefore other people will get things wrong too. And so this idea of getting things wrong, failing, making mistakes, but understanding that that's that's okay and we all do it, I think firstly breaks down any presupposition that that's not acceptable or that we shouldn't you know, allow that kind of thing to happen. And then I suppose a lot of it has got to do with the way we communicate around that. And again, knowing how to communicate well, probably one of the key things that, that I would touch on quite frequently is this notion of, of assertiveness. We're not, often not very good at being assertive. And if you want to have a difficult conversation with someone or raise a complex issue or say something that needs to be said, Address something which is uncomfortable, then you need to know how to say it well. And often, rather than saying it well or being assertive, we might we might instead be passive and not say it because we're worried about creating the conflict. Or we might be a bit aggressive because we're we fear the response that we might get from that that person. We might be told no or sorry, I'm not, I don't like what you've just said. And again, that that trying to control that outcome often becomes you know can come through in a bit of an aggressive approach. And so, a, a really assertive approach is actually at the core about being vulnerable. It's about saying what you want, saying what you feel, saying what you need, being able to be open in that sort of way. Putting on a table, I often use a table as an example, and, and then stepping back and giving the other person a lot of space to step into that conversation with you, to look at what you've you've said and also the the opportunity to disagree with you and you give every indication to that person that that you're okay, you're comfortable with them disagreeing with you. Of course, that can be uncomfortable. No-one likes to be disagreed with or told no. It feels like rejection. We're very sensitive to rejection as humans. but. Managing that and recognising that bit of vulnerability is very, very important, the way we communicate around these sort of complex, difficult, sometimes uncomfortable issues is really important, I think, for being able to deal with the sorts of issues teams need to deal with across a range of fronts.
2: Now you touched on this before with leaders, and I often think leaders are on a bit of a double-edged sword because you're wanting to create a really positive environment to work in, but we also know that you know pain is part of an organisational condition. All organisations go through pain at some stage, or I imagine most do. So if you want to be, you want to be on the best place to work list in the UK or Australia, how might we? How should leaders think about pain?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the worst thing that you can do as a leader is end up in an environment which you might refer to as toxic positivity or this idea that, you know, that you're trying to encourage people to always be happy, perhaps because you think that if they weren't to be happy or that, that having any of that negative emotionality at work is somehow dangerous, it's a can of worms that you don't really, perhaps you don't even know what to do with it. You don't know how to lean into it and sit with it as a leader and so you try and avoid it at all costs. And, of course, that means that, Nobody can be authentic and vulnerable or bring their real selves to work. Of course, you don't want everyone being vulnerable all the time, but appropriately vulnerable is good. And and so as a leader, I think, you know, you need to know how to acknowledge and sometimes call out that sacred cow and acknowledge this is a bit crap. Actually, you know what, this is a really hard time and I'm willing to acknowledge that and let's all just take that as it is. Let's not try and pretend this is anything it's not. Let's not try and drum up the the hype to make it look like it's a good thing putting lipstick on a pig, so to speak. You know, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> and I think that's really important as a leader to be able to just provide people with that sense that, you know, you're a realist and you don't expect them not to be and you're also comfortable with them expressing their concerns, this their discontent, what what's hard for them and allowing that to be there. But in a sense, in a way, having those tools that allow you to know how to do that well, how to, how to lead and also manage people through those sorts of interactions and through those sorts of experiences, I think often we don't really have those skills. And, there, and it, it is about understanding that people will have these experiences at work. Pretending they don't is no there's no point to that. And then then how do you support them and be open with them about the fact that these this is the way it is? Uh, and try and, of course, find solutions. It's not like you're just going to say, well, it sucks, so, you know, suck it up. You do need to find those solutions um, and help other people too as well. But It means starting with the acknowledgement of what things, you know, what it's really like.
2: And if you're a a leader wanting to be, I read so much about the importance of curiosity and something Mm -hmm. we speak nonstop about, I know very much goes into your work as well, about being highly curious. How can a leader, what can they put into their lives to be a little bit more curious? Like, how can they drive that notion of curiosity from, I guess, from someone who is highly curious Mm -hmm. by the nature of the work that you do?
1: Well, I think the first thing that you need to do is recognize that it's not about demonstrating your your knowledge in a particular domain or always coming along to perhaps find evidence that you know for the way you've started to do something or the the ideas you've set out to look for confirmation that you know for those, but rather to actually step in. I mean, a curious mindset is about firstly trying to see what it's really like, to accept and to explore where things are really, but also to, I suppose, explore our own responses to that and be open to those too. So I think, you know, a curious approach is really a scientific approach, actually. It's a, it's about testing hypotheses. It's about exploring and understanding. And often we think that as leaders, we've got to come in with the answers. And I think recognising that that's probably not the right thing to do often and, and coming in with the questions, coming in with those open end, those sort of open questions as a leader and, and and letting people have a have a contribution to that as well, that can feel threatening because again you feel like they might think I don't know what I'm doing. But actually, letting people contribute to that is really important.
0: It was a, it chimes again with something again a theme that we've come back to. But that curiosity, perhaps married with humility to some degree. Yes. The scientific method re- requires you to go. I'm probably wrong, or I want this mm. to be overturned and improved upon. I want yeah. it to evolve, so I'm ready to surrender my yeah. own idea or position for the greater yeah. good. Yes. Um,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, so there's an idea. I mean, there's an idea getting around called confident humility, which is a good one too. It's the idea that I'm confident in my my ability to do this role, but I'm humble enough to know that I don't always have the tools or the answers. And if, you know, of course, that allows that malleability. It allows that that response to uh, and allows the agility as well to move as as you get the evidence on the ground.
2: Okay, it's time for another thought experiment. And this was, I was reading your article, uh, Are You Wary of Animal, Human-Animal Hybrids? It's probably just your own moral superiority. And it was really fascinating, I think, from the, and I'm paraphrasing around if we grow human organs in pigs and, and different things, so around the morals and ethics and how people feel a bit, a bit about that. So it just got me thinking. So we've got a thought experiment called Defend Live Party. And we've come up with some own hybrids of our own and we want you to choose which one would you have to defend your home, live with in a small cabin in the woods for a weekend and go out for a big night on the tiles with. Okay. So uh, We'll start off with which would you rather defend your home? Would it be a -a wooferoo or an octofox? So the wooferoo being a wolf crossed with a kangaroo or an octopus crossed with a fox?
1: Oh, I think definitely the octopus crossed with the fox because that would just look terrifying. It doesn't need to (laughs) woof.
2: John's laughing. Have I got the wooferoo wrong, John, or no?
1: I don't
0: know what a woof is. I I said wolf. Wolf Wolfaroo.
1: What's a wooferoo? What's a wooferoo? Barking kangaroo, obviously.
2: (laughs) I I did drop the L. (laughs) Oh, but either way, let's not be picky, John. Let's not be picky. Octofox, okay? Well, you've just All created
0: right. another hybrid there, a woof, woof It's
2: a cross between a bark you, and a kangaroo. Your yeah.
0: experimentation's gone crazy.
2: cross between a sound and an animal, you've cr- a woof and a roo.
0: Ne- you've crossed an ethical line there, Simon. Yes, that's right. <laughs>
2: All right, next one, John.
0: <laughs> okay, so, uh, so this next one is, uh, which of these would you rather live in a small cabin in the woods with? Would it be a elephant which is a beaver cross with an elephant or a hippo hog which is a hippopotamus cross with a hedgehog
2: and for context it's a small cabin it's snowing outside and you're locked in there for the weekend
1: well with the size animal. doesn't appear very different <laughs> um the hog makes me think that there's going to be some space lost so probably the what was the first one the beaver
0: the El- uh the, the <laughs> yeah the belophant. Yeah.
1: Belophant, the bellophant, the elephant. yeah. Look, you know, the elephant sound probably sounds better than the hogger. What the hogger root? No, what was the hog one?
0: The, the hippo hog. Hipper <laughs> hog <No.
1: yeah>.
0: <laughs> 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 so, you're going to go for the bellophant, yeah? Mm, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. I suppose if the if it's mainly the beaver's body just with a massive trunk, I suppose that'd be okay, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, We'd use it as a hoover.
2: <laughs> That's it's good it's, it's good i hadn't thought of that one or the hippo hog you could put like the little like it could be kebab meat on its spikes you know what i mean like a little cheese platter like i used to do mm. in the 80s you know you get gherkin and uh cheese and put on a jet's cracker all right <laughs> third one now <laughs> you're going out for a night on the tiles end of lockdown big bangin maybe like a big club night or something that you're really into whatever i'm again
1: sorry
2: that's all right, just pretend <laughs> when you were into it, just pretend you were and you've got, you got no responsibilities for a few days, you're going to go large, okay? Right. Yep. Who would you rather go out for a night on the tiles with? There's a choice of three. A cross between Charlie Sheen and a flamingo. The second one is Grizzly Bear and Paris Hilton. Or the third one is Boris Johnson and a wombat.
1: Oh, look, definitely Boris Johnson and a wombat because, I mean, you wouldn't want any kind of, you know, Charlie Sheen could steal your thunder. Uh, well, I'm not quite sure of the Paris Hilton one, but yeah, I'm going to go for Boris Johnson or Wombat. I think be a good, <laughs> wing, wing wing Is it a wingman? Would it be a wing? Yeah,
2: wingman. Yeah, wing- wingman.
1: Yeah, yeah, or, or a wing thing. <laughs> yeah.
2: And that brings us to the end of defend, live,
0: party. Brock, we're going to um, just come into a rapid fire round now, so few questions from ourselves so first off one thing that you couldn't do without in your life at the moment
1: i'm in lockdown so running (laughs) that's pretty much the only the only thing that's keeping me sane and then probably a glass of wine at night to be honest with you (laughs) i
2: have a similar routine brock so (laughs) i'm sure i know john's is quite similar as well even though he's got some hit training now this might lend into that what's your guilty pleasure at the moment
1: that glass of wine at night, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <After the kids laughs> now,
2: yeah. Any any particular grape or
1: bottle or style? Uh, style, like, you know, the right word. anything red, anything red. But oh, uh, you know, try the whites as well. Nice shiraz, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right.
0: Brock, we are building the occupational philosopher's Manigesto as opposed to our own manifesto. So, what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included on our manifesto?
1: Enjoy the journey. Oh, I like
0: that.
2: Now, Brock, is there a book we should be reading, obviously outside your own, one you think would be a great book for someone to read that you, you maybe go back to or you really enjoy?
1: In Particularly in this space, I think at the moment I'm a big fan of Adam Grant, mm. you know, and he's got a book out at the moment called Think Again, which I think is Really, really well timed. Given that we're all needing to rethink a bit of how we approach everything, and you know, there's a lot of change and whatnot going on. So, yeah, you know, he, he's a, a very good uh, researcher, and but also a very good, a very good communicator. So, I would, I would, uh, yeah, think again, it's a good book.
0: And finally, uh, Brock, imagining yourself many, many, many years from now as you're uh, guided into your retirement home, and all the other residents are sat there in the lounge and and they bring you up and say uh here's brock he is how would you like to be introduced to the fellow residents at your retirement home here's brock he's he has no regrets
2: So, Brock, what are you up to next? What's exciting about the next 12 months?
1: Well, I mean, uh, you know, the the research machine keeps trundling along and and we keep coming up with new and interesting ideas there, but also in translating that and working, uh, you know, with some new programs that we're rolling out in in workshops for organisations actually called Rethink. So I think that's going to be very exciting to see how, again, how to help people to lean into challenge and change and to lead through that as well and working on a, on a couple of side projects so a well-being tool for founders that's a you know a little bit of a, a new one that i'm working on too so a few different things again just to you know to keep life interesting and, and a range of different interests yeah
2: for entrepreneurs or sort of yeah. like startup founders yeah that's
1: right yeah okay. well. so it's so uh, you know we're, we're looking to build a a place where where founders can get together and actually share a little bit of their well being uh, journey and a little bit of that vulnerability, you know, to be supported. Again, it's a very lonely, a lonely position to be in as a founder. Often, a startup, you know, early in the phase, and to have that sort of that that community around you, where you can, I guess, yeah, not only look for some tips around your business, but also around share a few stories, a few war stories, so to speak. You know, that's that's our aim there. Yeah.
0: Are there any questions bubbling up, uh, Brock, that are going to sort of be the source of your next piece of research?
1: I'm really interested, actually, in, uh, in the process at the moment. I'm interested in the process of um, how we deal with moral and ethical issues at a societal level and, you know, this this notion that, that actually a lot of things are getting moralised and a lot of things are viewed through an ethical lens and this is creating things like the cancel culture, political and social divides, and so understanding that a little bit more, I think also understanding how to get people to change behaviour on ethical grounds is quite interesting. It's also very tricky. You know, people can go different ways with that and you can easily get it wrong. So I think understanding how to apply good ethical thinking in the real world and also to understand the consequences of getting that wrong for societies and communities is, is really important too. So that's a broad brush you know, of perhaps some directions in the research side of things, yeah. Yeah,
0: just make sure that Professor Tom Smith doesn't peer review it because he doesn't like you.
1: Tell you what. And if you're a student, (laughs) beware of the chilli
2: experiment. So, look, uh, where can our listeners connect with you, find you, buy you a virtual drink? Where should we check you out, so to speak?
1: Sure, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, There's a website with my name, Brock Bastian. Yeah, probably those two places to start with and, uh, yeah, shoot
2: me an email even all right old school i like that so it's funny
1: if you like i also like letters but but email is probably better yeah.
2: <laughs> but i mean email is old school say to my kids can you email me that and they go, what like what do you mean like they don't <laughs> they don't use email email no, at all. but
1: look this is true
2: brock it's look it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and I'm always absolutely inspired by every guest, and that's couldn't be. It's absolutely doubly so today. So thank you much, so much for your energy, your time, and uh, your smile and your great sense of humour as well. And uh, joining us on the occupational philosophers.
0: Yeah, uh, echo that, Brock. Thanks very much. Yeah, and uh, great hair as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, we you've got, got some
0: fantastic lockdown hair going off there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, but yes, no
0: brock yes. absolutely fantastic could have gone for a lot longer maybe if this show has some longevity maybe we could get you back at some point and uh, talk about your latest research or your latest book be an absolute pleasure
1: sounds good thanks simon thanks john appreciate it
2: john what an amazing show that was today with
0: brock bastian what a brilliant guest yeah, he was uh, just got some real fantastic insights. Uh, I had a real good sense of humour about him as well. He indulged our thought experiments. Great fun and lots to talk about. I hope we can come back to together with him. What about takeaways from Brock today, Simon? What was uh, we like to do our top threes? What were the key takeaways for you?
2: Well, there's so many. It's always, uh, I guess, a little challenge narrowing it down to three. But I like that one around right at the beginning of the show. Spoke around finding the gap when he's, with his research, find the gap, then find a question. And I think it's a really nice idea around being in, in what it's what entrepreneurs do, but also being an entrepreneur in your organisation. Like, what's the what's the question you should be asking? What are maybe the question your clients are asking? What's the gap? And that's a really nice way to to push your your creative effort as well into that space. Uh, On an interpersonal level, I like this notion of we love people who get it wrong, like we get anxious around people who are perfect.
0: (laughs) So if you're trying to... No one ever ever gets anxious around me. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) That's
2: why I've got so many friends. (laughs) But um, that idea of maybe if you're trying to project this image of Mr or Mrs Perfect in your organisation, I know the answer to everything, I never fail, which we often hear about, you know, a leader might sort of think that's part of their role. How's that making the people around you feel? And so maybe it's good to have some of that, or not maybe, it's good to have some of that vulnerability. And just the importance of having a diverse team, disagreeing with each other, being open, challenging each other, so we can have our blind spots seen, because we all have blind spots no matter who we are.
0: Yeah. No, what about you, John? Uh, I think the one the ones you said about, people turning up and not being perfect and how that uh, that's useful that that went to the idea of confident humility for me which is leaders who are confident at, uh, about what they know and what they uh, are skilled at but at the same time are humble enough to recognize they might not have all the answers and so that allows them to be very open to ideas to evolution to perspectives and different ways of thinking and I come I've seen that before that humility coupled with curiosity is very very powerful so that was uh, that was really good way that he described that he also then mentioned the toxic positivity that sometimes organizations can find themselves sort of creating where it's a bit happy clappy everything's okay and hey what are you so miserable for we're brilliant and they paint a message which is inauthentic. And so people then can't be authentic. They can't express themselves. And of course that then, as we know, in that kind of environment, you don't get people doing their best work. You don't get them thinking creatively. They don't feel safe to express themselves. So a lot of things are lost. And then finally just the in the rapid fire he just said, his managesto quote was enjoy the journey, which I thought was a lovely, gentle, sanguine kind of (laughs) call to arms. But isn't that such a
2: nice thing, like whenever you do, like with this notion of pain or which he spoke about or you have a crappy day or whatever it is, just just it, it'll pass and sit in it and enjoy it. Like don't, um, yeah, just don't, yeah, enjoy the journey because we only get one, John. Well, depending on what your spiritual plane is, we only get one <laughs> in this lifetime. <laughs> That's too deep to go there, so we'll uh, we'll leave that for another I'm, episode.
0: I'm coming back as a woofaroo
2: <laughs> With an L? <laughs> So, John, what do we want people to do?
0: All the usual. Subscribe, keep listening, tell your friends. Check out the website, occupationalphilosophers.com. Get in touch if they want, occupationalphilosophers at gmail.com. Yeah, I think that's it. We've got some stuff on the website as well that they might want to uh, download. And if they want to ask us questions or suggest things that we might want to explore in future shows, please do.
2: And we've got links to all our socials on our website. And As we always say, be curious, make stuff, play more, have fun.